This program is brought to you by Resonance 104.4 FM. If you like what you hear and want to support our work, please make a donation at fundraiser.resonance.fm. If we have a cup of tea, Mrs. Griffiths, mm-hmm. uh, we have our little chat. Mm-hmm. There you are, too good. What exactly has the cinema meant to you in the last 30 years? Well, um, since my husband died, it's brought great comfort into my life. We always went to the cinema together and enjoyed it very much. And after he died, I felt I couldn't go inside the cinema again. But I thought I must pluck up courage, you see, like other people. And I walked around and and I felt, no, I can't go in. And then I said, I must be brave and go, you see. So I did. I went and got my ticket and I felt he was with me. Mm. Yes. You know, get the same as old times, and I'm sure he was, and I'm sure he's always with me now. I should be very lonely if I thought he wasn't. Uh, the old place has been everything in its day. It was a theatre way back, before they built the railway. Then it was a musical. I wonder how my great-uncle got mixed up in all this. Well, it was before the First War, apparently. The young Simon must have had quite away with him. He even managed to get some of the local people to put their money into it. <laughs> My dad did, as a matter of fact. Spencer's Electric Theatre was called in those days. The first in this part of the country. Resonance 104.4 FM. If you're listening in London, resonancefm.com. If you're listening to us on the live stream, or maybe you found us on the beekeepers or oneword.com, where there's a, a splendid archive of all our old shows and our podcast, More Music for Films, and all the additional material that involves. In the last two years, Ros, we have made more than 25 hours of original radio good lord and we've covered we've really and if have... you add to that the material left over from 2012 funny you should mention that so if you've not heard our show before music for films the clues in the name <laughs> it's a show about music and films but also the memories that people have attached not only to films but also to the magic places of cinema yes. cinema buildings film studios it's one of the things that we've gradually become more interested in is that sense of place is that sense of cinema as something that takes place in a, the quasi sacred space where people share movies with each other and so for the last two years and I think probably for at least one more year uh, we made this map, which we call the Scala Map, after the Scala Film Club, which used to be at King's Cross. And on that map, we have replaced every station on the London Tube system with a film, a film which is either made at the film station, like An American Werewolf in London. Mm. There's that scene where the guy gets chased down a tunnel. Well, that's at Tottenham Court Road. So other stations, the link is... More tenuous. Tangential. 
digressive, fictitious, <laughs> grasping at straws in some cases. Yes. Um, you, when you're, when you're reduced to using St. Anselm's rather dubious proof of the existence of God as the link between a film and a place, you know you're going tenuous. You're referring to, to Dark Star. Dark Star. And the Beck in Suiting Beck, which of course refers to the old priory that's linked to St Anselm. Indeed so. Now that's... That's as tenuous as it gets, but it's a terrific film, Dark Star. Hmm. John Carpenter. Who was really that good again? Funnily enough, we're going to talk about John Carpenter later on. But uh, the music bed you can hear at the moment, of course, is Benson, Arizona, from that lovely film, Dark Star, from the end of that. Because this show is a special show that we've put together. I'm not quite sure when it's going to go out. I suspect it might go out around Christmas. Uh, But we have taken some time off. Uh, Regular listeners to Resonance FM will have noticed we made a show in July. We made that lovely show about... uh, Murder by Decree and Hainault and Sherlock mm. Holmes. Well, we've got another show for you, which is a follow-on from that conversation that we had, but about Baker Street and the private life of Sherlock Holmes. Right. So that show, uh, to be blunt, I haven't finished putting it together. Right. But we'll do that show pretty soon. Um, so that will be on Resonance. But we haven't had a regular show in the broadcast schedule because we made one in July. And we. this is a show about memory and we ponder a lot and we do put quite a lot of thought into each of these shows and we've both got lives I think perhaps you more so than me well you have a life I have I have a life plus a novel I'm not getting written and poems poems keep happening and I have to go off and write poems we're recording this bit at Shay Ros yes I'm sitting here cuddling my toy dragon because I can and I'm sipping a lovely cup of tea which Ross has made for me this dear listener I'm so glad to have this opportunity to share with you this experience of being in Ross's living room which is and I mean this floor to ceiling full of paperback books CDs DVDs the memorabilia of a life of mm. of a full life and I mean there's a picture of our dear friend Mr Jeffrey Ryman when um, he was quite young younger than he is now he's still young at heart but he's yes. considerably younger in that photograph and yes um, there is that amazing photo that, that of all people young Hayley Campbell took which I occasionally uses as my icon which is yes terrifying <laughs> The terrifying stacks of untidiness in which I... Well, actually, if people go and look on your uh, your Twitter account, which is, of all things, Ros Caveney. Yeah. At Ros Caveney. Your, your header on that is actually a image of exactly what I can see in front of me, listener, which is Ros sitting, well, in this case, cuddling a dragon, uh, sitting in a lovely leather armchair, surrounded by books, pondering... The state of the universe. And yeah. What else is there to do at Christmas? Really? Indeed, so. I mean, uh, it's always Christmas. 
always Christmas and never winter. So how's the, how are your books going? I'm waiting for book four to finish the endless editorial process of book four of Rhapsody. So Rhapsody's your big fantasy novel thing. I'm working rather desultorily on book five because that's the thing and um, I've just not been especially in the mood. Um, I'm Once that's done, I shall be writing a sequel to Tiny Pieces of Skull. Which is your effectively your memoir. Memoir. I'm writing a, a book about... I'm, I'm writing another memoir novel about the 1980s. Now, I have got this as far as it's been written, and I have read much of it, but I must shamefacedly admit that I have not finished reading it, which I really should have done. But part of the reason that we're not making this show on a regular basis is because, uh, to be blunt, you've got books to write. We're going to try next year and make uh, shows in blocks. We're going to carry on making them, but it, mi oh. it might either be we do them sporadically as podcasts. It might be we have them regularly in the exactly. schedule. This will be a thing. Because Music for Films and the Scala Map, it's a project for us. It's, it's the thing we do when we hang out yeah. as, as mates. But it's one of several projects. I mean, and not every project works out. I mean, I have been trying to raise, crowdsource a third poetry collection. And, alas, thus far... Not as much as you'd hoped for. Not as much has happened as I would have hoped for. But that could change, that could change. Well, I, 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 I could I, win a poetry competition. You won a lambda. I won a Lambda. You only won the bloody Lambda, darling. Oh, yes, I did win the Lambda. Second time. Which is that that's the... Uh, Second nomination, darling. Premier LGBT Literary Award, yeah. uh, for which you went to New York, I gather. I did. Well, I that's did. nice. Yes. Nice trip to Manhattan. Yes. Um, hang out with my friend, Mr. Adi Tantino. Um creator of, of that great short film Shinky Boys terrific guy yeah I met him when we made our shows in New York a while ago more of which later this more of which um great guy great guy great expert on film you know someday we should do a film map of New York oh don't because we've got so many mates in New York on the east coast um I'll admit uh I've obviously given this quite some thought you know the show I really want to go and make? Which one? I really want us to go back to New York and make a show with your friend, my friend, Mr. Jim Freund. Yes, that would be Who lovely. makes the splendid Hour of the Wolf show, which you've been a guest on. I have, a couple of times now. For WBAI in New York, now based in Brooklyn. Mm. That, that splendid radio station based on the Berkeley Free Speech process movement it's, yes. it's one of the legacies of that and Jim's been making his show about uh, science fiction and the New York science fiction scene and, and science fiction generally uh, for more years than one cares to th think of happened amazing back catalogue of shows he's got it's extraordinary yes. well, I mean you know, he's, he's he's the governor but he's already done a bit on his, on the Arab of the Wolf and Jim if you're listening Big love. Big love. And hello, it's me, your TM's listener, sponsored non-commercial Pacifico Radio in New York City. 
WBAI at 99.5 FM and at WBAI.org. And that is very possibly, in all the years that I've been doing radio WBAI, as an engineer or as a host of a program, possibly the first time I've knowingly played Todd Rundgren. <laughs> It's always your first time. You'll never forget your first time, mister. Yeah, well, yeah, but you see, the, the thing is, as I was saying off the air, it seems like I like Run Run, mm -hmm. but I never paid enough attention to know that that was him. Um, it, it, it's being credited to these five people, so it, it's a co collaborational thing, and I'm sort of su suspecting that it was probably something that was born out of some sort of improvisational. Yes, it sounds like something work. Firesign Theater might have come up yeah, with. Yeah, yeah, and they much. did. They did the Martian Space Party and a couple, right. and some really sorry guys. I love the Firesign Theater. I worship you, but Zachariah. <laughs> That I don't know about. Oh, yeah. Zach, let's put it this way. I saw Zachariah more than once. This movie by the Far Sign Theater mm. in their era. Mm. Um, actually, it had a star in it. I don't remember who. And I saw it at the Elgin Cinema. So oh, that, my. That helps Back date before it. it was the Joyce. And Back yeah, before they got they the marijuana fumes out of the uh, out of the theater. No, they still haven't. Uh, oh, really? I haven't been they to the real, choice they, in a while. They what? really still haven't. <laughs> and the young lady that sold the num nums there—they didn't mm -hmm. sell popcorn. They sold raisins and yeah. nut mix. Yeah, yeah. Is still a friend of mine. Oh, really? As a former WBAI okay. uh, 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 on the air personality, yeah. uh, and we're Facebook friends yeah. and talk occasionally. At any rate, all that aside, Zachariah was a really, really great film after about the fifth toke. <laughs> the Elgin tended to run films like that. Well, and on that basis, <laughs> it was worth seeing. Yeah. But You know, and... and Speaking of that, I mean, the Elgin for me was the period of the 70s anyway. I was a, a student at NYU. I never miss Aaron Wolf. I go on the WBA website, listen to it, or I also subscribe to it as a podcast. He's already done a show where he mentioned the Elgin Cinema in the West Village, which right. we didn't get to, but is famous because that's where Midnight Movie started. It is. Where El Topo was. So that's one of the ones I'd like to do. There's so many. Yes. But we are still focused on cinema in London. We're still focused on our Scala map. And we've made a couple of bits for shows for next year for you. But they're so good. We're letting you have them now. As We're so presents. good. Our guests are so good. The subject matter is so interesting. And in the case of this first sequence, topical in quite a sad and concerning way. It's about trying to save the cinema museum so at the end of October we went along to a public meeting at the cinema museum in Kennington and you're about to hear people talking about how to save the cinema museum because as we're going to explain this wonderful institution which we've already made two shows at yeah. is shockingly and suddenly at Under risk serious threat so now you're going to hear a sequence where we uh, were at the public meeting 
and then you're going to hear an interview with and I'm, I'm so excited about this Neil Brand Neil Brand Sound of Cinema Neil Brand from the proper radio Ros yes from proper proper BBC radio and it's a, well you'll hear but it's a great interview and I think the thing that I was so pleased about was you'll hear towards the end of it Ross, you were just mentioning how one of our interests is cinema as a, as a sacred space. Yeah. Cinema as magic places. Well, here, you'll have to wait a while because this is quite a long interview, but in about 20 minutes, you will hear Mr. Neil Brand talking about cinema as a sacred space. Well, there you go. Great minds think alike. There's one here, Mark. There. One over there. I just wanted to um, support your point that the collection has to stay in this building, and I believe that for two reasons. Ross and I have made shows here. We made one at Christmas uh, when you had the Chaplin Theatre show here, and with the public, we walked down to one of the houses where Charles Chaplin lived when he was a boy. It's a very sad story. Uh, that came up when we made that show when Charles Chaplin was a little boy and he was incarcerated in this institution one Christmas he won a, a prize, he won a shiny red apple and they took it away from him because he was naughty because he was encouraging the other children to rebel when Charles Chaplin was here it was a very sad depressing building, the history of this building is depressing, the children were forced to sort through old rope pick it apart to make oakum should this building be flat should this building be a hotel I think this is to do with our souls as human beings and with the soul of this country this is London where theatre was invented the precursor of cinema if our culture simply becomes people living inside gold bricks it will be sterile there will be nothing so I think there's actually an almost spiritual point about keeping this building and keeping this institution. But also, this incredible collection, look around at all these beautiful machines, this incredible backpuss of Aladdin's cave of old technology. And one of my hobbies at the moment is collecting stories about the old gubbins to do with cinema. Somewhere in this fabulous collection is the projector from Winston Churchill's projection room at Chartwell, which later was acquired by the hippies at the Electric Cinema Club in Notting Hill, which of course is still going. Uh, and Ros and I interviewed Peter Howden, who was the manager there, and he told us they used to put Peeping Tom and Blimp through the projector because it would annoy Churchill's ghost. <laughs> A collection like this, once it's split up, it's gone. So it's got to stay here and it's got to stay in this building. I've saved them for years, bits of them. 
we used to run them like this in the old days, but not for years we haven't done it. Now it seems like old times once more. So that was Margaret Rutherford playing the piano in Basil Dearden's The Smallest Show on Earth. And we are very lucky to be talking today to Mr. Neil Brand. Hello. Who, for many, many radio listeners, requires no introduction. But I suppose we should introduce you because we're on the internet. Um, you're known as a broadcaster on the BBC here in Britain, but also because you, as Margaret Rutherford was doing in that clip, you still play the piano, live live accompaniment for, for movies. I do. I've been doing this job for 32 years now, which uh, is quite scary to think of. But um, I've also been very, very involved with this place, which is the Cinema Museum in Kennington. Um, I've done a lot of performances here, and interestingly, shot quite a bit of telly here as well. Uh, it gets used a great deal, as you can imagine because as soon as you walk through the doors of the place you are in a world in which cinema exists past, present and potentially future as well and um, I've always seen my job as a piano player for silent film to be about communicating what somebody may have wanted to say in 1895 or 1921 or 1928 to an audience sitting here in 2017 or 2018 and this building does exactly that. What I play is to try and bridge that gap between the film and the audience. You come here and you do that and it's so much easier. The audience already knows what a kind of weight of history there is, uh, both for the art form of cinema and for those of us who probably from a very early age thought that cinema was actually more real than real life which is the other reason I do this job. What do you think is the connection between this building and the architecture of cinemas? I'm very intrigued by the fact that although this building is now full of Chaplin's memorabilia mm. and, and a, an assortment of fantastic machines from the history of mm. 100 years of cinema, but of course it has a very sad uh, history as the workhouse where Chaplin was incarcerated for a couple it, it of months does. as a boy. Yeah, it does, absolutely. It's interesting, I think, because this area has changed very little, really. And given that this was a place within which, not just Chaplin, but you're absolutely right, thousands and possibly hundreds of thousands of people were very, very, very unhappy. The Victorians bought, built workhouses to try and persuade people not to go into them, to persuade people to try and exist on their own. Uh, abilities rather than put themselves in the hands of the workhouses. So I do think that this is a space that is quite kind of uh, sacred in a way, both in terms of what it represented then, but what it represents now, and particularly what it represents now, thanks to the good offices of Ronald and Martin, because as curators of the Cinema Museum and of the uh, collection that exists here, one of the things that Ronald set out to do was to keep as much of the cinemas he worked in as possible and that included cinemas in Scotland in London, I think in Kent and Sussex so what you'll find here is in all the different nooks and crannies is not just the projection equipment, the lighting equipment the mechanics you'll find the carpeting mm. you'll find that very 50s looking plastic come um, 
possibly I don't know. It's it's it, it's some sort of form of rounded edged wood that I think of when I used to go to the state cinema in Great, which looks of its time, but is very much saying cinema and saying picture palace. The lettering, the little machines that tell you whether the stalls are full or whether there's any seats still left in the circle or in the upper circle, which for some generations older than mine, I have to say. You couldn't afford anything but the upper circle because that was only threepence or ninepence or whatever, whereas anywhere else was going to cost you two bob and there was no way anyone had that kind of money. The posters, the process of selling cinema, the phenomenal amount of lobby cards, little bits and bobs of leafleting and background details to films, the press packs, all of that exists in this space. There are old cinemas in this country and around the world. Mm. But this seems to be unique in the sense that it's a collection. Mm. Although it wasn't originally a purpose-built cinema, mm. it's a big hall. I mean, churches I mean, and halls and cinemas are quite similar in that the sense. The major part of the collection also has to be said is images. The Ronald Grant archive is first and foremost an image bank. That, too, I think, is an absolutely invaluable, as in you could not put a price on that collection of images because Ronald set out to, to find stuff that nobody else has got um, he beat me to what I would consider to be the all time prize which is the floor plan of the Hal Roach studios when Laurel and Hardy were working there so it's the complete uh, engineer's sort of site plans which shows every studio every part of it where the dining rooms were where the dressing rooms were, where the storage was, where the lights were kept and all the rest of it uh, it's just a set of lines on a piece of paper but as far as I'm concerned that's one degree of separation from Laurel and Hardy um, in this building is one degree of separation from 125 years of cinema, that is quite astonishing really. and the film we're, we're we're sort of, although we're talking about the Cinema Museum, we're talking about this campaign mm. to save it. Mm. We're hooking it around this Basil Dearden film from the 50s, mm. The Smallest Show on Earth. And it's had a kind of little bounce. Mm. Um, it's been restored. Uh, we interviewed Stephen Woolley last year, mm. and I showed him this map we've got where we've put uh, mm. a film with every tube stop. Mm. And The Smallest Show on Earth is in Kilburn because they built the Bijou. Right. Yeah. between two uh, railway arches yeah, yeah. no between yeah. two shops uh -huh. that was the front for it and Stephen Woolley went oh I've just been to see a restoration of that and Leslie Phillips was, was talking mm. there's something about this this little British Lion quite a quickie film mm. which has some wonderful performances from Margaret Rutherford's in mm. it as the pianist Peter mm. Sellers as the old projectionist who's struggling with drink mm. um, not an exceptional film I don't even remember it really being on Channel 4 when I was a kid mm. but it's it seems to be having um, a little kind of mini renaissance mm. and I'm sure it will be on Talking Pictures at some point and it's going to become another one of these kind of uh, films like The Leather Boys Well but it's another one in the in the Ealing style of the small trader up against the big conglomerate who wins out um, I can only hope that the Cinema Museum turns out to be Bill Travers in, in, the, in the Smallest Show on Earth because those films, for all the fact that they're wonderful and they're classics and they're worth seeing and they're funny and all the rest of it, also celebrate a kind of British parochialism which doesn't actually help much when it comes to the hard-nosed future for this space. 
the hard nosed feature for this space is that we are going to lose it. Mm. End of. There isn't going to be some magical um, fire in the big cinema that means that they don't end up selling the bijou. Yeah, Morris, the, the uh, commissioner, is not going to go no. in and set fire to the NHS one night and that solved no, the whole problem. It solved the whole problem. It is unfortunately um, <clears throat> the film we're up against. If, I suppose the film that represents us more than anything else is probably one of those ones in which you just know that that big fight is going to come and you don't know if everybody is going to be standing at the end of it. And that's slightly my take on how things are here. And anybody who's interested in cinema, anybody who loves it, anybody particularly who's interested in the kind of craft of cinema, should be 100% behind this space. It's not about the old films. It's not about the past. It is about the future. And I think that's probably the one, the most important thing to take away from it. And that's a very interesting point to me because one of our uh, friends of mine, perhaps in their 20s, about the fact that petition's done very well. Mm. And I noticed from, it's not in any way to detract from uh, amazing turnout tonight, mm. so, so many people, um, but it does very much represent a generation of people who grew up with the experience of going to the cinema, who mm. grew up watching old films and particularly Chaplin films on the telly. That was, that was mm. their introduction to it. Um, but who appreciate the experience of watching something with other people, mm. being part of a, an audience. I mean, it's a very interesting word we have. You listen to the film. Yeah, but then that's the case now. I mean, the, the cinema as, a, as an entity is on a massive roll. More cinemas are opening this year than have ever opened in the previous 30 years. Uh, the multiplexes are all doing fine. People want to go to the cinema. There is, however, I don't think it's a generational gap. I agree that there were more grey heads in that room today than there were with hair. But at the same time, what I would say is that this is not about a kind of celebration of the old. It is about survival, and it's about survival for a younger generation who, if they grow up without this stuff, are actually going to be culturally less enriched. There's so much fascination to be had out of what cinema does and what it meant where it came from Scorsese never opens his mouth about his own films without mentioning Alan Pressburg mm. where the film has come from now that you've just paid 15 quid to go and see in the West End is available to look at at home probably on YouTube uh, or to come to a place like this and try and understand where it came from you know, the, the, the great successes of the future and the great filmmakers of the future are only happening because there are people out there who love this thing so much that they actually think, I could do that, or even I could do that better. And they will be the ones who will find somewhere like this absolutely irreplaceable. But also the audiences. There's no point in having a, a, a new David Lean or a new Tarantino come out of the generations to come if there's nobody going to go and see their film. And telly won't do it. Netflix won't do it. Um, it's going to have to come down to someone who can pack out all the cinemas around the world on that opening weekend and make back three times what the film cost. Because that's the only way that the studios will fund it. So I think this is, this is, the, this is the, the sort of reality of it all. Somewhere like this is part of a future. And a future of an art form that I would love to see have a, re a, re a renaissance in this country. I would love to see there be a British film industry which stood on its feet and yelled in a way that you know it's it, it, it did maybe when it was making things like um, the smallest show on earth but a 
a proper wide-eyed multi-interested uh, film industry which covers all the different cultures we now represent in this country and in this city and which feeds off the past successes and translates them into stuff for the future that's that 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 i look forward to seeing very much and i hope will i'm very struck by the fact that in this morning show on earth the cinema building that you feel affection for is this very old broken down creaky thing what they're up against is this art deco thing which i suppose when they made it it seemed like modernity but there's all these ideas to do with art deco ar architecture to do with uh parasitic drag mm. and it's all about economy and strip stripping everything back what is it about the physicality of these objects, the physicality of analog film of this building, that provides that continuity? And I'm thinking about the fact that you're a pianist, so you're dealing with the disturbance of air. It's a physical process that affects our eardrums. Um, well, as far as I'm concerned, the space in which cinema happens is a fairly sacred space. And as a piano player, that's what I try and do. I try and turn the room into a sounding board for whatever that film is doing by the, via the piano. What cinemas do, and I'd include the multiplexes, I'd include the most modern places in that, is that they also create a magical space. I take my little boy, who's eight and a half, to Surrey Keys. We walk into that enormous carpeted foyer and we're immediately surrounded with all the iconography of the most recent films, and quite a lot of them playing on a loop. And it feels exciting. It feels fantastic. Because you just think, oh, wow, I want to see that. Oh, I'm really looking forward to that coming out. And that's exactly how it felt going. It didn't feel like going into the flea pit in the town I grew up in, I have to say. Because you'd walk in there, the first thing you'd smell was some really heavy disinfectant, which basically meant it wasn't covering up anything. It was just horrible. And you'd walk up the stairs and you could feel the carpet cling to your feet as you went up. And it was just really nasty. Now, the sense of what cinema is, is in the sort of, it's in, it's in the hardware of the stuff they have here. And it's in, it's in, it's in what we all do. Thank you so much for your time. Pleasure. situation is there are developers who are interested there's been possibly eight to ten different groups of people coming to visit the site some of those developers want to talk to us before they make their decision about whether or not they're going to put in their bid we are also still with our housing association partner they're still being very supportive and they are preparing a bid that will go in. But of course there is no guarantee that their bid will succeed because in this particular circumstance and situation we uh, have been led to understand that what they are seeking is the highest bid that they can possibly get for the land. So that's a big question, I'm afraid, and I can't really tell you much more about that because we don't know the cut-off date uh, when the bids have to go in, 
were not privy to that little bit of information. So we've no idea when SLAM will come back to us and say, we've accepted the bid, your six months starts now. Um, that's right, isn't it? We don't think um, that there is a secret date that we don't know about. SLAM have put this up as an informal tender, and an informal tender means that they can talk to whoever they want for as long as they want, and they can draw their own deadlines whenever they want to. Now, the fact that we have been granted protection by Lambeth Council um, under the community asset lock means that the hospital has now decided to get council's opinion on where they stand legally. And although they have continued to talk to interested developers, they are spending an awful lot more time with their lawyers at the moment. So we're awaiting some sort of feedback from them at some stage, maybe this week, maybe next week, but I think it will be within weeks, um, as to where they feel they're positioned as a result of what their council have told them. Thank you. So, basically, in terms of what next, we're continuing to work with our housing partner, and we will be monitoring that bid when it goes in, obviously, uh, and we may be successful. We will talk to any other developers who show an interest and want to come and talk to us, and there are, out of the ones who've been so far, there are two who want to have conversations with us before they put their bids in. That probably means that they are seeing us as the key to unlock their planning application, probably. That that's probably what the payoff would be, that they would want to promise us that we can either remain here or buy the building from them or have it on a 999-year lease or whatever in exchange for us giving 100% support to their planning application. What the other ones are going to do, we have no idea. Now, of course, there is a whole scenario of possibilities which we have tried to work out, you know, what, what's the best thing that could happen down to what's the worst thing that could happen. And in my view, and I don't actually know if this is shared, but Catherine, the worst position I can see is that a developer who wants to offload a shed load of money will put in a bid and then do absolutely nothing. They'll land bank the site, but they don't want a cinema museum in this grade two listed Victorian building. They would like to perhaps have this grade two building turned into a hotel. So they'll increase our rent to a point where we are totally unable to afford to pay it. That's the worst scenario. But hopefully it'll be one of the better ones, the ones at the better ones at the end of the spectrum. So what we are very keen on with this petition that we've put has been to show how much public support 
there is for the museum and how wide-ranging that public support is, which is why we were asking people to put comments in the comments box so that we could show that it was international, it was corporate, it was individual, it was passionate people, uh, all of those things, just to show the huge range of people who really, really, really want the museum to be here and to grow and to be the wonderful place that it is for so many of us. So we're sitting here on a quite pleasant late October evening in the cinema so museum, uh, live responding to live tweeting of Robert Mueller's investigation into Russia's possible collusion in the US presidential election. We're, and we, while waiting for a list of an unredacted list of the names of sex pest MPs. It's exciting stuff. With Catalonia only being a sideshow. So I'm very struck by the fact that what's occupying our mental spaces these days is to do with fake news and botnets and Vladimir Putin's announced that the next Cold War is going to be a fight for supremacy over artificial intelligence. It's all very high-tech stuff going off, going on in the ether somewhere, in the dark net, in the verse. Do we still call, call it the verse? I don't know. I, um, think, I think there might be part of the verse somewhere here in this collection at the Cinema Museum. Probably, but who can say? I mean, I haven't been through every jot and tittle of the collection. I do gather that in one of the cases they have uh, Molly's retractable razor blade fingernails from do the Batson novel, yes. Oh gosh. Okay, let's do this. Hook me up. Meet the ultimate hard drive. Hit me. He's got 80 gigabytes of data in his brain. The information you carry could save the world. We locked on him. And a price on his head. Keanu Reeves is Johnny Mnemonic, rated R. I wish that was true. I wish that was true. Were true. I wish they had the uh, the dolphin from Johnny Mnemonic. I wish they had the red pill. <laughs> Actually, they really do have a red, red pill, pill because it was in the snippet. It's the cinema museum's red pill. After this, there is no turning back. Take the blue pill, and the story ends. Take the red pill and you change it all. So our, our heads are in the matrix, but we have now retreated from and our feet are in the gutter. We've well we've And some of us are looking at the stars. Movie stars. stars. In this case Cecil B. DeMille's Union Pacific on a fantastic well I suppose that must have been a hoarding in his cinema in yeah. the nineteen thirties at some point. And so this this museum is full of just these extraordinary mechanical contraptions and the the false work and the gubbins of the illusion of cinema from and over the, a century. Behind, oh, behind you, there's a poster for Ben Hur. Yes, the spectacle, the colour, the excitement, the human drama of Ben Hur has swept the world. Ben Hur is many things to many people. Now, as a motion picture, Ben Hur has inspired enthusiastic acclaim in every corner of the earth. In New York. In London, in Tokyo. Mark Ben hated her. <laughs> <laughs> Old joke. 
So all these people have gathered to discuss saving a cinema museum. Saving a cinema museum. An important cause. And it's so terribly sad that an inst- you know, we're put in this position by politics and by Brexit and by the collapse, putative coming collapse of the London property market, in a situation where two institutions as excellent as the Cinema Museum and the National Health Service are fighting like rats in a trap over this wonderful building. smile even though it's breaking when there are clouds in the sky oh goodbye if you smile through your fears and sorrow smile and maybe tomorrow your banner love comes shining true we're stepping out once again into the south london night here in oval in south london yeah. where listeners will remember we on this very spot, we gave a talk to the general public about Charles Chaplin's life as a boy here at the Cinema Museum, back when it was a workhouse. Yes. And uh, then we walked down the road to Methley Street, one of his boyhood homes. Now, in that programme that we made at the Cinema Museum, we talked about how sad and depressing his life was as a small boy living here before he made it big on the music hall stage and eventually ended up in Hollywood and uh, in other shows we've talked about how the culture in London, the culture in the English speaking world is moving towards buildings being sort of gold bricks that you live in yes. um, so there's this quite troubling development to do with the cinema museum which is the nhs trust wants to sell the building to cash in its chips while the property market has any value at all what do you make of this ros i think it's uh, the thing is everyone everyone loves the nhs and the nhs has got to survive financially in a situation of cuts and yes it also has to be said that the financial management of the south london area management mental health team have behaved it seems quite unethically and not taking a good offer to preserve the museum and build social housing in an attempt to get maximum amount of money in a very short-sighted way because given the planning application is going to have to deal with the fact the building is listed, that it has TfL tunnels underneath it, which limit what can be built on on the site. Yeah, you can't build high, you know, you can't build an office block here because it will collapse into the ground. You can't build something you can sell to oligarchs who want to build build big big areas under the ground because so, there is no under the ground. So there's going to be no metal spi- big glass and steel spikes sticking up into the sky or a walkie-talkie or perhaps a giant tea's made? No, I mean... I'm looking at three huge kind of... What's that? That's the Sauron Tower, that one, isn't it? That's yeah. uh, 
is that that's the new Mordor development they're building yeah. in South London. Ah, Baradur, Baradur, Sirithongol. Well, that's easy for you to say. <laughs> I've practiced, you know. So, uh, um, so my feeling about this, I'm going to give two versions. One for the broadcast version and another for our exclusive podcast version, which can be perhaps a little bit fuller and franker in my choice of Anglo-Saxon vernacular. Uh, so this is the broadcast, family-friendly version. I think a situation where the workhouse where Charles Chaplin was incarcerated as a boy turning into a bijou hotel or luxury flats is... Uh, unfortunate, distasteful, desecration, indicative of a culture which has given up on itself. Is that going too far? I don't think so. And what's the other version for the podcast? So the podcast version of my views is that the idea that the workhouse where Charles Chaplin was imprisoned as a lad becoming luxury flats or a, a bijou hotel is a fucking outrage yes it's a fucking disgrace it's a fucking short term arrogance and they probably won't act the worst of it is they'll dither and fuck around and they won't actually get more money for it than the cinema museum partners were offering in the first place yeah it's just this kind of seedy shabby fire sale oh what's that oh that's an old Victorian grade two building that's probably worth something better fucking sell that off to the Russians as fast as we can um I'm incensed about this I think I mean I don't live in England anymore but obviously I'm still from here I think it's um no (laughs) no that's not happening no um this is Chain yourselves to the railings time. Well, Goliath in this is not, is not the NHS. It's not even the financial side of South London. It is the system. It is an ethic which values nothing except for short-term ideas of cash. It's uh, what William Cobbett called the thing. It's that sense of what Orwell said about Dickens, that you know, England is a family with the wrong members in control. Well, so, yeah, that was uh, us wandering away from that meeting and wandering away from the cinema museum. And uh, before that, you heard Neil Brand talking about how important it is to save it. Now... Uh, we mentioned, or rather you referred to uh, William Cobbett's idea of the thing as what we're up against. And uh, William Cobbett's the thing as opposed to John Carpenter's the thing, which is the Howard Hawks thing from another world, which is John W. Campbell's who goes, who goes there. And the music bed that you can hear is jo- the music from John Carpenter's The Thing by John Carpenter because mindful of the fact this show is music for films it all connects 
It's a, it's a shame that um, because the sound this goes out pre-watershed, we can't quote my favourite line from John Carpenter's The Thing. But if listeners choose to subscribe to our exciting extended podcast edition, More Music for Films, which you can find at thebeekeepers.com or your podcasting application of choice, there it's no holds barred. Some of it's really quite frank. So if you listen to the podcast version, you will be able to hear Ross say this. You have got to be fucking kidding. <laughs> um, which, of course, I quote, I quote in book three of Rhapsody you do. of Blood. You do. Now, so William Cobbett... In an entirely appropriate context. Entirely appropriate. And speaking of Rhapsody of Blood, William Cobbett, The Thing... Yes, he's someone who hasn't cropped up in Rhapsody and probably never will. But you know what the connection between you and your Rhapsody books and William Cobbett is? No, I do not. And, a, sh- and a show we have made for Resonance FM, a music for film show we made in New York. Well, William Cobbett went to New Rochelle, yes. dug up Thomas Paine's head and lost it. Right. And of course, Tom Paine is a character in book two of Rhapsody. And Tom Paine's... Uh, the place where Tom Payne sadly passed away as an old guy in Greenwich Village is another magic space not of cinema so much as of humanity yes and I loved uh, walking around the corner from that we, it was a pink berry or some kind of frozen ice cream place wasn't it we mm. went to and then we strolled around the corner and I knew that was where Tom Payne died and well dear listener now you're here We're on this quest to go to these sacred sites of uh, hidden culture, secret history of midnight movies, the secret history of the alliance between uh, queerdom and bohemia. And I've started us off a little around the corner from uh, the place we're going to next because there's another sacred spot which I know about, Ross doesn't know about, and I'm about to reveal. So scary, exciting. We're outside Marie's Crisis Cafe in Greenwich Village on the corner of Grove Street. Yeah, and I, I saw that earlier and I thought, why does that sound familiar? What is the bell that is failing quite to ring aloud? Well, the bell is immediately to our left, which is a plaque on the wall of uh, Mr. Thomas Paine, of <laughs> sacred memory. Of sacred memory. Born 1737, died 1809 on this site. Good Lord. What do you think's the the significance of it being here in Greenwich Village and it being so near to this other important site? We're well, about I to think visit? he's a, I think he's a proto-Bohemian. I think he's just one of those people you know, without having to worry about it, is, is on your side. It's that thing of um, it's that thing that Orwell says about Wells, with all his criticisms of Wells, that growing up it was nice to know that there was this bloke who was sort of on your side even if you got a lot of things wrong which is very much how a lot of my generation and generations after me think about Orwell who got a lot of things wrong but was fundamentally on the right side and that I think is how we should all feel about Tom Payne you know he's one of those people who's just with the programme it's like Eugene Debs you know while there is a soul in while while there is a working class I am of it while I am while there is a criminal class I am in it while there is a soul in jail, I am not free. Tom Paine would have written that. 
cheerfully. He was he was a mensch, really. Yeah, exactly. And I think what's so great is that it's a plaque that's next to a live jazz and blues cafe, and it's sort of one of the more sort of prominent, uh, more sort of traditional, or kind of slightly shabby, but still quite charming jazz cafes in Greenwich Village. Yeah, well, it goes on. I saw, I found the Blue Note the other day. Who knew the Blue Note even existed as a place? In London, it would be probably have been knocked down. Yeah, I mean, well, Ron, Ronnie Scott sadly is a shadow of its former self now, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. And the Blue Note was always more important than Ronnie Scott's. Okay, well, that was Tom Paine's uh, memorial yes, and where he died. Charming. And now we're going to walk around the corner to in Sheridan Square, named after one of the heroes of the American Civil War. And what do we find in a corner of Sheridan Square? But a, 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 a tavern originally named for one of the most notorious generals of the South, Stonewall Jackson. Jackson. Had you made that connection? I, I had, yeah, yeah. A friend of mine made it for me earlier. I went, oh yeah, that's true. So at this very, very busy intersection of uh, Christopher Street and Sheridan Square, Sheridan Square. and 4th Avenue, so you, you first visited Manhattan in early eighties, seventy eight. Seventy eight. Were you one of the people that got on the, the, the cheap Freddie Laker flights? I went on I went on a Freddie Laker flight on my way to Chicago, but I visited New York and was totally confused by it and never got a geographical sense of where anything where anything was. So and I still haven't been able to retrace my my first trip to New York because I have no I know there was. I spent a lot of time in a bar somewhere near Times Square talking about the plot of the second season of Rock Follies and getting bought drinks by people who were fans of the show and hadn't seen it yet. <laughs> so I suppose our sense in cinema of New York uh, in that time is very much sort of shaped by... Oh, thrillers. It was dirty, it was dangerous, it was strange. Serpico, Taxi Driver, yeah. Saturday Night Fever, which of course I think is a great movie and is overlooked for the fact that it is a, it's a real melodrama as well. I mean, everyone yeah. remembers the dancing sequences, but not the, uh, the, the quality of the performance and the drama in that yeah. film. Well, one of the nicer things about uh, David, uh, David Thompson, film person, David yeah. Thompson, about one of his, his novel suspects, is he comes up with a theory that the guy in Saturday Night Fever, played by Travolta, actually grows up to be Vinnie Vega. Dancing, you can't last forever. It's, it's a short-lived kind of thing. But I'm getting old, you know. And, you know, I feel like I feel like you know. So what? I'm getting old. Does that mean like I can't feel that way about nothing left in my life? You know? Is that it? Coming from Paramount Pictures. The original soundtrack music of Saturday Night Fever, featuring new songs written and performed by the Bee Gees, including the number one hit single, How Deep Is Your Love, and the hit singles, Night Fever, and Staying Alive. I love you so much, can't count all the ways I've 
so kind We never get tired of putting it down And I never know when I come around What I'm gonna find Don't let them break up your mind to a movie theater in Amsterdam and buy a beer. And I don't mean just like an old paper cup. I'm talking about a glass of beer. And in Paris, you can buy a beer in McDonald's. And you know what they call a, a, a quarter pounder with cheese uh, in Paris? And what do they call it? They call it Royale with cheese. Royale with cheese. That's right. What do they call a Big Mac? Big Mac's a Big Mac, but they call it Le Big Mac. Le Big Mac. <laughs> what do they call a Whopper? I don't know, I didn't go on a burger Can we go and look in the square for a moment? Yeah. So, I'm just scoping this area out and thinking the strategy of having a riot here. So, I suppose the reason that we're here, primarily, and the reason why this corner of Christopher Street has been, has been renamed Stonewall Place mm. to commemorate the, the inn that's to our left now, left of this little square, uh, it's because it kicked off. It all kicked off. You'll notice, however, that the plaster of Paris statues are, you know, that commemorate the Stonewall Riot are the sort of slightly fashionable uh, gay men and lesbians who did not take place in the riot, which was mostly trans women and, and butch dykes. These, these sort of remind me of um, uh, the... Plaster of Paris uh, sculptures, the, the paperweights in uh, that Scorsese film with uh, Griffin Dunn. Yes, indeed. Is it called uh, After Hours? After Hours, that's the one. about. That's about the East Village, not the West Village. Yeah. I wanted to ask you this all night. Who's Franklin? Franklin? Franklin is my husband. Really? Is that uh, his loft then? He owns it, yes. Okay. Well, um, do you live with him? No, he's in Turkey. Look, I stayed with my husband for three days. I was very young when I got married. My husband was a movie freak. Actually, he was particularly obsessed with one movie. The Wizard of Oz. He talked about it constantly. That was cute at first. That was the, some of the best fun we've had. Yes. That bit. And then we got to walk across the road because right across from where Tom Payne died and that jazz club where where um, Charlie Parker used to play is where it all went down. Where it all went down. I mean, one of the great revolutionaries, one of the great jazz revolutionaries yes, and the start of the LGBT revolution all within a few feet of each other. I mean, you can Isn't actually, that amazing? You can hear in that sequence, we actually, in real time, because there's no edit, we walk across that street talking about uh, John Travolta and Saturday Night Fever and uh, Pulp Fiction in that sequence. But that's in real time. Th that corner in Greenwich Village in Manhattan is so full of wind. Is it possibly? Has this been scientifically tested? Is that the place in New York that's the most full of wind? Probably not. There's some amazing spaces in New York. Statue of Liberty's pretty cool. Pretty cool. Liberty? That's a cool... That's, I'm up for that. Yes. Studio 54. Studio 54. 
the factory. Well, where the factory it was. was, yeah. I give you another one. The Chelsea Hotel. I've stayed in the Chelsea Hotel. So have I. Not at the same time. Not at the same time, sadly. Well, the coolest things that ever happened to me was checking in at the Chelsea Hotel, and as we checked in, Kathy Acker had us paged. <laughs> but I have been, that's not the only time I've been to the Chelsea Hotel because I, 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 I've interviewed a couple of thriller writers in the bar at the Chelsea Hotel. And so what, what is literally around the corner from a Chelsea Hotel? Tell me. Elgin. Of course. Yes, it is. Two or three minutes walk around the corner. And between the Chelsea Hotel and the Elgin is a multiplex. There's still a cinema. Mm. Uh, operating on that on that corner in the West Village in Manhattan. Um, love it, love it, love it, love it, love, love it. it. And we love the Cinema Museum, and we love where Charlie Chaplin lived in uh, Methley Street. And I don't think we actually explained well enough in that sequence. So, I, well, we should m be clear now. What is the problem with the Cinema Museum being possibly sold off, and what can we do, Ros? Well. The problem is that it, the, because the Cinema Museum is the old workhouse where Chaplin was incarcerated as a child, um, it ended up as a slight white elephant property belonging to the National Health Service and quite specifically to the South London Mental Health Trust. And they, given the level of cuts and austerity, inflicted on us by this thoroughly mendacious government. Of course, by the time this airs, that might have gone away, but we cannot know that. Um, are out to maximise their income, and with the imminence of Brexit, are terrified the property market is going to crash. And so, in our view, ill-advisedly, are selling on, on the open market rather than selling to a partnership of the Cinema Museum and a housing association that want to buy the property, the, the other sites on the property surrounding the Cinema Museum, which are also part of the deal. The problem for the South L London Area Mental Health Trust is that there are limits to what you can build on the site because it has... TFL tunnels, TFL tunnels of all things given the nature of our show underneath it uh, also because uh, the old workhouse is a listed building also because though this is to some extent open to appeal it's designated for use as a cinema museum and That's a, I mean, as as Martin said in that meeting, its designated use in the lease is as a cinema museum, not just as a museum. It specifies a cinema museum, so that's its stated purpose. Um, and it may well be that the sort of property, shall we use the word shark? Property yeah. shark. Property developer. Yeah. Who might well wish to purchase the site is going to be aware that there are limits to what they can do with the building. It has downstairs low ceilings, upstairs high ceilings, it has beams which will be part of the listed quality, it has internal decoration, uh, you know, circular recesses in the walls which will be a problem. 
it's hard to see what a developer will make of it except leave it to sit and fester and eventually fall down uh, and I don't think anyone's going to be doing that. There, is, I think it's an understandable temptation to try and depict this issue as kind of David versus Goliath struggle of the little guy. I mean, you've got this iconography yeah. of Chaplin literally like he's a tramp and this big evil property no, developer no. M- monstrosity. That's not it. It's more it's, complicated it, than it, that. It, it, it's the museum versus the system. It's, the, it's, it's this commercial system we have in which good people like Slam are forced into impossible situations by the need to balance goods. It's not really a matter of raising enough money to buy the museum to save it. It's not a fundraising thing. Although, obviously, please do give money yes. to the cinema museum. That's not the issue. It's that the South London Area Mental Health Trust, because they have their own priorities, are concerned to get the maximum for the site possible. And, in fact... This may well not even work out the way they want it to, for the reasons we've we've mentioned. Nobody's saying that, for example, the old reception ward, which is one of the adjacent buildings, is any kind of sacred building which should be sacrosanct and not developed. Uh, what's the other building on the site? The nurses' home? Yeah. Um, again, everyone agrees that the nurses' home is something which could and indeed should be redeveloped. The question is whether it's developed for commercial property or affordable housing for a housing association that would and the housing association would leave the museum in place in this lovely listed building. So there's really three things at stake here, as I understand it. There's the issue of... It's the old workhouse where Chaplin was uh, incarcerated as a boy. Do people really want to turn it into flats or a hotel? No, that that does seem to be distasteful or or almost a form of desecration of of the memory, Mm. not just of Chaplin, but probably more importantly, the many, many thousands of people that were in that building. Yes. I mean, the point is, one one of the people who went through that horror, that institution in the days of, of its being a nightmare became a great international artist and humanitarian. And we're not commemorating just him, we're commemorating all the people who didn't have the good fortune and talent that he had. So using it as a cinema museum seems to be an appropriate, sensitive, thoughtful, long-term use of that space. And there isn't a cinema museum in London apart from the cinema museum in London. So that's another reason why it should be kept. But the third issue here, the, the, the final one, which we're talking about, to be clear about this, is it's not David versus Goliath. It's more that an NHS trust, something which exists in the public trust, in, in the public interest, is... Capri- what's the right word for this? Capriciously? Thoughtlessly? Recklessly? eccentrically but why are they doing it it's just because that's just what they do it just seems to be just kind of the mechanisms of power are oh as you're saying oh well we must be sentimental about this old cinema museum where Chaplin was a boy we should jolly well turn it into flats or a hotel because that's what you do and they will accept 
a not very good deal from the property because given the encumbrances on the building I'm very sceptical that they'll get the sort of deal from property developers that they think. Yeah, it doesn't seem very likely. Whereas they can have an unencumbered deal which leaves the cinema museum in place which develops the other buildings on the site as affordable housing and affordable housing is what you can build on the site because anything more than a few stories is going to have a problem with the tunnels yeah it just the, the land itself cannot bear that weight so it's, it's significant that half the time the South London area mental health trust have not even known what the deal was that they had that was on offer because literally because of staff turnover they keep forgetting that there's a really quite good offer from a housing association on the table it's just bureaucracy isn't it it's just the way that bureaucracy works in in modern yes. britain I'm, some people have assumed that they're that that they're, they're, they're trying to mislead the public no they simply have no institution working institutional memory because of staff turnover this is all so brexit ross well, it's not just Brexit, it's everything that's been going on in this country this century and and for a decade or more before. It's Brexit is just another symptom of this ridiculous culture of short term short termism and half assed ruthlessness that came in with Thatcher and has continued ever since. I can't disagree with you. Oh, here's a go- here's a wizard wheeze. Let's, you know, conservative. The previous conservative government was brought down by the miners, so let's shut the mines down because that will show them, and let's not rebuild because that will show them. And London needs a proper transport system, but let's not develop the East London line because that runs through Labour constituencies what, whereas what we actually need to do is build a line that goes out into Docklands where we're having a huge development that will make London a great international city except it didn't really quite. Yeah I mean I, I, just to get to where Ros lives in this particular part of Hackney I have had to get on a tube train then get off then get on a bus and then walk for about 10 minutes I mean this, the, all this part where you live this is the bit which Thatcher's transport plans anyway just didn't forget but just sort of willfully neglected yes chose chose to punish I mean in fact the situation is hugely improved by putting in the, the putting in the uh, the overground hmm. but that's far from a perfect situation because we're still a little bit of a black hole in the middle of things hmm. oh yeah we have we have the overground we have a couple of shuttle buses um it's not as isolated. I mean, I've I've lived here since since 1981, and believe me, <laughs> the situation's improved no end. And Thatcher just hated East London because it was never going to vote for her. Now the fact of the matter is that now it's got a decent transport links. This particular area has become you know, became first of all the centre of Britpop, 
Um, Brit, not Britbot, Britart. Britart, yeah. And is now on the, and now it's got the, tr the transport links, has become Silicon Corner. One of the few areas of the country that's where productivity has gone up rather than down. Um, that could have happened years ago, except that Thatcher chose to starve it. Well, funny we should be talking about parts of the country and parts of London which people choose to ignore, and funny we should be talking about the magic spaces of cinema because we did a fantastic interview a couple of weeks ago with a very interesting gentleman who used to manage the electric cinema in Notting Hill, which is still going. Mm. Interestingly, under the management of property developers, Soho House. Yes. Now, one of the things we talked to... Not all property developers do exclusively bad things. things. Uh, the gentleman that you're about to hear us talking to, uh, we did this interview a couple of weeks ago, Mr Peter Howden, the former manager of the Electric Cinema Club in Notting Hill, the hippie cinema club that ran in the Portobello Road from 1968 onwards. Well, the 50th is coming up next year. Yes. Will Soho House have uh, any celebration of the of the legacy of the Electric Cinema Club? Will they invite us round to make a show about it with one Peter Howden? I hope so. We will, we will wait and see. But that was one of the things we talked to Peter Howden about. But uh, this bit is us talking to him about the, the projector. I mentioned earlier on in this show, but when I mm. made my point in the public meeting about the Cinema Museum, I mentioned, and this is the connection between the Electric Cinema Club and the Cinema Museum in Kennington, that the projector from the Electric Cinema Club, which used to belong to Winston Churchill, has ended up at the Cinema Museum. Cinemas, because of their footprint, just basically the size of the footprint of the building, means that they often just about survive some kind of rezoning or replanning. Mm. But then they also become... Uh, well, there's, so one aspect of this is that often church buildings or places of worship and cinemas become interchangeable. So this very interesting cinema, which one day we'll make a uh, programme about up in North London, which is now a Zoroastrian temple. Now there's a story along these lines to do with the electric cinema, which I'm absolutely fascinated by. And I want to believe that this is true, and I'm hoping that you'll tell me that it is actually true. Is it true that the projector that you had was purchased at auction from Winston Churchill's private projection room at Chartwell. And furthermore, is it true that you used to put Peeping Tom and uh, the life and death of Colonel Blimp through Churchill's projector to annoy the old man's ghost? <laughs> <laughs> well, we certainly showed um, Blimp and, and uh, Peeping Tom and other, many other Michael Powell films um, both because we all... We showed Michael Powell films and before Michael Powell was rediscovered. In fact, the, um, the first book ever written about Powell and Pressburger was actually devoted to, to me and the electric for doing exactly that. Uh, so it wasn't much a case of knowing Churchill. How much each? Uh, five shillings each, sir. Oh, well, I'll have that one. Yeah. Oh, and that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Uh, how much would the lot be? Uh, to you, five pounds, sir. Five pounds? Well, uh, I'll tell you what, sir. I'll make it four pounds ten, and I'll throw in the Times and the Telegraph. How's that? Thank you very much. Yeah, well, let me wrap it for you, sir. Thank you. 
Shall I, shall I put you on our mailing list? Oh, no. No, no, no. I, I'll look in again. Very well, sir. Well, he won't be doing the crossword tonight. Well, look who's here, Cecil Beaton. The projector story is actually true in a slightly different format. It, the 20th Century Fox had actually given these projectors to Churchill and they'd been installed at Chartwell and subsequently removed and they were in the basement oh, of yes, you say building. They were in McCarthy's cellar. Dear fellow, that was agreed, wasn't it? Agreed, my foot. How many agreements have been kept by the enemy since this war started? We agreed to keep to the rules of the game and they go on kicking us in the pants. When I joined the army, the only agreement I entered into was to defend my country by every means at my disposal, not only by the National Sporting Club rules, but by every means that have existed since Cain slugged Abel. Stop it! Don't we know that they're counting on us to keep to the rules? Stop that it! That they openly boast about it? That they laugh Stop at us? Stop it! Lieutenant Watson, or whatever your name is, you are not in Hyde Park with an audience of loafers. I am Major General Wynne Candy. These other gentlemen have all seen service, distinguished service with the British Army. All I can say, sir, that when Napoleon said that an army marched on its stomach, I'd better stop, sir. We, we did extremely pay a very officer. small amount of money to, to buy these projectors because the original, the Imperial Butler Rose projectors were on their last legs. And so, yes, indeed, we did, we did have Churchill's projectors and we never showed Lady Hamilton which was his favourite film in fact. Oh I know, she helped you, she encouraged you. Why it was part of our plan to play upon your vanity. And she's quite capable of declaring you the father of our child. Francis, control yourself! As long as I live I shall be your wife. We've been living in a dream and now we are faced with the truth. How ugly it is, how terribly ugly. Here moves drama the screen has seldom known. A daring, intimate story of a glorious woman fighting the irresistible power of love. With lovely Vivian Lee in a worthy challenge to her Academy Award-winning role as Scarlett O'Hara, Laurence Olivier. I mean, I don't want to be nostalgic for the olden days because they were good because they were temporary. Mm. And you had to be there. If it carried on, then it wouldn't in some ways be as magical or as memorable the 60s. I think there's an argument for saying it's good that the 60s ended. Um, although I wasn't there, so how would I know? Um, but, I mean, do you feel a sense of loss or regret about the fact that there aren't institutions, there don't seem to be institutions like the electric anymore, anywhere in the world? Oh, there are. I mean, Castro in San Francisco is still going, going strong. There's places in... in but certainly not in, not in this country. Uh, but this country has never been a particularly cinematic country. Um, people much prefer to stay in rather than go out and stuff. Um, and cinematic culture is not, is not, has never been particularly strong. Um, I hope places like the Electric made it a bit stronger for years. And people like Steve Woolley will say, that, yes, the Electric made him Steve Woolley, sort of thing. And, but, um, but no, I don't. Nostalgia is a little overrated, I think. Um, 
Not what it was. It's not what it used to be. Yeah. Some of the best hours of my of, of, of my twenties were spent in your cinema. So, yeah. Well, certainly must have been. So, I mean, I, something it, most enjoyable years of my life was, was spent there. I mean, I, I don't think I've ever enjoyed it so much. It was bloody hard work. And there are very few cinemas about which I'm nostalgic, mm. as a, not just for the things I saw there, but for the time, the place, the ambience, and the mm. electric mm. is. Is one of them just as the scar? The the electric helps define a particular period of my early twenties. The way the scar defined defines yeah, my, yeah, my, 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 my my mid thirties. Yeah, yeah. Well, that was an interview with Peter Howden. Next year, you will hear more of that in our show about the moon over the alley. Mm. And you'll hear more of uh, us talking about the cinema museum. We'll do an update, and you'll have another chance to hear the Neil Brand interview next year when we talk about the smallest show on earth but talking about Cinema Museum talking about Charles Chaplin I'm reminded Ros Capeney last Christmas we went for a walk from the Cinema Museum to Charles Chaplin's old house and you talked in a very eloquent fashion and I think it'd be nice to hear that bit again yes shall we yes this map which is kind of what our radio show is about is putting films together with tube stops so I suppose what's particularly interesting to us is having written this play about Charlie Chaplin 
what's the connection to this building, the Cinema Museum, and this area, and how, how do you feel about this area, having spent so much time in, in Chapman's life and his, in his head? Yes, yes, I have. I've read all the books, nearly all the books that have ever been written about Chaplin. But I come from a small seaside town called Selsey, Selseyville mm. right. in West Sussex. Yes, I'm from Brighton. And you're from Brighton. Yeah. And um, there's... It, in, in 1913, it was a very small town, 500 people, but they, they built a wonderful theatre there. And this theatre then became, it fell into misuse in the 60s, 1960s, and since then it's been used as a builder's yard. So a couple of years ago, we, did a, we decided to do a play about the trenches because it was the centenary of World right. War One. In the process of cleaning out this derelict building, we find all sorts of Chaplin memorabilia. So really? the builder who owned it was very keen on Chaplin, and he actually had his wife had a little ice cream store, which was called Chaplin's, just on the side of the building. So looking for another centenary thing to hang, to hang almost sort of publicity for our little town and our little theatre... We just, we just, well, I realised that 1915 was the centenary of the birth of the little tramp, you know, that mm-hmm. little tramp persona that Chaplin had. Right. So we put a play on there in our little town, Selseyville, and Martin, who um, is the co-founder of this cinema museum, about which so much of it is Chaplin, came to see it because he heard about it, and he said, please bring it to the cinema museum and to do it here. So we've all traipsed up from Selsey. We've all found accommodation with friends of the museum. So we've, uh, you know, we're accommodated all around the place. And that's why we brought it here. But we also fell in love with this building when we first came to see it last beginning of the year in January. Absolutely fell in love with the building and what Martin and Ronald are doing with it, all the memorabilia that they've collected. Mm-hmm. And so that's why we're doing it here, really. Put, put Charlie Chaplin back in this building, which was the old workhouse that he came to all those years ago when he was a little boy of five. Yeah. So when one reads up <laughs> accounts of what the Lambeth workhouse was like, when he, he wasn't here for very long, he was here for, for, I think, about six, seven months. Yes. But the regime here sounds as if it was particularly unpleasant that there were... Uh, there were sheds outside for sorting through wood scraps and also oakum which is uh, taking old bits of hemp or jute rope and picking all the fibres off and then that would be used mostly for... And that really messes up your hands. Yes, and um, you breathe them in too, don't you? So you you get sort of a fibrosis. Yes. And and Dickens uh, mentioned specifically... uh, sorting oakum in Oliver Twist as one of the jobs that the children have got yes. so this building is yes. very architecturally a very beautiful building but rather like Chaplin's life when he was in South London it's, its history is quite grim it is mm. absolutely he had a terrible childhood really but I think one of the, the one of the points we're trying to make to the people of this area, to the children who live in this area because we've got children's matinees really is that that you can rise from poverty and you can rise from those circumstances which you're in as a child and make good, if you like. So his was probably one of the most famous rags-to-riches stories, but everybody can do it with that determination and with that sort of self-confidence. And he never for, he never forgot. I mean, there's that wonderful sequence in The Kid 
where he runs across the rooftops to rescue the kid. Oh, gosh, we do that. We show that sequence. Yes. And the children love that sequence. They love that bit. We show a little montage of the kid when he yeah. finds the baby and then eventually he rescues the kid from the... Um, from the orphanage van. Yeah. Oh, they love it. It's just four minutes. Yeah. And of course, it's part of kids today will just say, oh, he's doing parkour. Yes, yes, yes. Because yes. he is. Yes, yes, yes. So, I mean, so that's why we're here. Mm-hmm. And we fall in love with this place. We fall in love with Martin and Ronald. And we realise that, you know, there's no public money coming into this museum. They're struggling, really. They're struggling to keep it warm, to keep it lit. But they have, it is such an, an amazing place. And now that we've done this play, a lot of people are coming back and they're sending students back to use it as a resource. Yes. So hopefully it will become more well-known and, and get some more support, really. Although it does run some wonderful... If there's an events booklet, and it runs all sorts of wonderful mm-hmm. events in the museum, mm-hmm. yes. But it's been a privilege for us to be here. So we're after um, your wonderful show, uh, we're going to walk with people from this building that was yes, the workhouse yes. to one of Chaplin's boyhood homes, which is just down the road, about 10 minutes away. And we're going to show the immigrants, which I know is also in your show. Yes, um, we have just a four-minute excerpt. It's almost 100 years since that film was made in 1917, so yes. it's a centenary of that film. Yeah. And I spend a lot of time in uh, India, yes. um, my uh, my other half's a film historian from India, yes. now studying here. Um, Chaplin is still beloved, but he's a preeminent figure in cinema. He's taken very seriously yeah. all around the world. Absolutely. A hundred years on, we're still talking about him. Yes, what? I'm still laughing at him mm. and crying too. Yeah. Well, he's, he's one of the authentically funny... Yes. Performers, yes. partly, partly because it's about human solidarity and yes. and, and, and and about and the, the oh, resisting authority. Yes. He's one of the great trickster oh, figures. Oh yes, cocking a snook. Yes. yes, but there is there is a little phrase: comedy is a serious business. Yes, and that's that's what it is. We we, we do we do no gags. We do we don't send anything up. It's all serious business. Yes. and that's where the comedy comes from. Well, uh, so I've just watched you perform as an older chaplain. Yes, empty Ch- Chaplain in repose. Yeah. And uh, shortly after this, we're going to wander to Chaplin's boyhood home. Yes. In yes. about half an hour. Yeah. Um, now, most of you, you've come up from the south coast for the, for the That's show. That's right, up from Selsey in yes, Sussex, yeah. yeah. I'm from Brighton. Oh, right. Yeah. So, south London to us, this part of London, do we have any kind of historical purchase? Can we look around at the buildings or... I mean, we haven't really got workhouses as such still standing in Sussex, well, like this building. Absolutely. And coming to Charlie Chaplin's home in Kennington it has great resonance for us. We started this project uh, over a year ago uh, to help re-establish an old music hall on the south coast in Selsey. It was one that had been built in the 1900s and was part of the Southern Circuit. Now, it wasn't beyond the imagination that Charlie Chaplin or somebody like that would have been at... Uh, had visited that particular um, uh, music hall and so Charlie Chaplin at the pavilion it was called was born 
the the fact that we moved up here was quite serendipitous because one of the local residents to Kennington happened to come and see that they have a, a, another home in uh, Selsey and they also said well I think it would be really good to put it on at the um, the old Lambeth workhouse the now cinema museum because it has that resonance it was a place where Sid and Charlie were incarcerated as young children it was a place where Hannah Chaplin would have known and the place that we're actually acting now the the the, the performance space is the old uh, chapel of the workhouse in the master's house so that had a great resonance now during my time here I've had a chance to walk around to the various sites of Chaplin's childhood St Mary's Church St Mark's Church and, and various other sites where the blue plaque is in Meckley Road etc and on the Kennington Road as well I tried to look for Pownall Terrace but it's not there anymore Um, and um, all that has made it very real to me and also very emotional to play the part as well thinking that I'm saying words that could have been attributed to Charlie but also in the place where he might have said them I spent a lot of time the last couple of years in India yeah and I became uh, friends in the last year of his life with the guy who saved most of India's films the guy oh, right, yeah. Nair. Yeah. Um, Chaplin is still very highly regarded as a filmmaker yeah. everywhere and beloved around the world as, mm. a, as a, a screen presence mm. India arguably has a kind of unique affection for him yes. that for example if you go into Indian bookshops you will still find box sets of Chaplin films and they are still yes. shifting units yeah. he's still popular yeah. and now the films have been restored why is it 100 years we're still, uh, later we're still talking about him? I think it's because the films that he made back in 1915, when he effectively was the most famous man in the world, um, were so profound, so well done, that they have lasted um, over 100 years. Now, it's, you know, 2016, um, as we say in the play. You know, he did something then that was so remarkable that it will last over 100 years. Mm, there yeah. are films which rely on the truth. If you watch them and you watch the facial expression, it's not acting. He, he tried to get to the truth of the situation. He made the little tramp as human as he possibly could so that you could see both the tragic and the comic sides of life, counterpointing each one to, to heighten the dramatic effect. And I think that that has a resonance today. And like any genius, like Shakespeare, when he first started writing his play, he came upon a new medium. Um, Shakespeare, it was the stages, like the Globe and, and the theatre. And with uh, Charlie Chaplin, he just happened to be along when the great musicals of the time were turning into the film theatres, the Nickelodeons, um, where people went to watch five-minute shows and gained, because they couldn't read, because this was in America, they couldn't read English, they gained immediate access to American life. Um, it provided with them what, they, what seemed to be at the time to be a profound realism, although the actors moved faster than in real life. What's it been like for you as a cast working in a building where you knew that not all that long ago, 100 years ago, kids were taking bits of old rope and picking apart the fibres and that would be used as cool It's very emotional. Ships. It's very emotional. Yeah. I think, I think the also to see the, the renovation of the Elephant Castle around this area and yet still coming across old buildings which were, I mean like the library down by mm-hmm. Kennington Cross which would have been there when Charlie was alive, mm. you know, 1889. Mm. Uh, I believe that building was, was erected then. To see uh, St Mark's Church, which he used as part of the set for the uh, opening uh, highlights, of, uh, the opening scenes of uh, City Lights. Mm. Uh, to see, I think it's St Mary's Church over here, where he walked Hetty Kelly home. I mean, it's absolutely profoundly emotional. It gives you a connection with Charlie Chaplin. 
Thank you very much. My pleasure. Thank you. What you're talking about is five-year-old kids working all day, picking rope apart till their hands bled, till they got splinters in their hands, till they got splinters in their lungs and coughed. And this was what they deserved for being poor. And of course, if you've got a bright, sassy kid like Chaplin, he was always in trouble. There's a story he tells about, which those of you that saw the show will know about, that he wasn't allowed to have a Christmas present one year because he was a bad influence, because he kept the other kids awake all night telling them stories. Yeah, it was a red apple, wasn't it? it was he was denied apple. a red apple. He was punished for being cheerful by, by for entertaining the other kids, for having imagination by being deprived of Christmas presents because it was for his own good who can't have children like that growing up thinking they're special because, I mean, society will fall apart. He wasn't in the workhouse... He was in the workhouse for various short periods because his mother was in and out of the asylum. And later on, we'll go from here to one of the houses where we know they lived. It's actually quite a nice house. It wasn't all misery. And, of course, he, his bro first his brother and then he escaped onto the halls. I mean, Charlie Chaplin managed to blag his way into the music halls when he was ten or something. I mean, he'd already appeared when he was five because his mother broke down. Again, as you'll know if you saw the play or if you've seen the Attenborough film, his mother literally had a psychotic break while actually singing on stage and got booed off stage and the five-year-old Charlie Chaplin went on and finished her song for her and retrieved the day I mean it's one of those I see no reason to doubt it happened but also it's one of those ah, it doesn't matter, print the legend um, but he never forgot. I mean, again, if you've seen the Attenborough film or if you saw the play this afternoon, there's this lovely little film he made with uh, Jackie Coogan as the kid where the tramp finds this baby and is that's Bye. been abandoned in the, in the street by thieves told, who sold the limousine into which it's, the, the kid's mother had put it. And he somehow looks after the kid. He improvises a, 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 a pot of milk with a spout and a, and a nipple that the, the kid can tip into it. And the kid grows up. And the kid helps him with petty crime. Um, they, you know, the kid breaks windows and he comes along and fixes them. And eventually, of course, the authorities catch on when the kid's five and take the kid away. And he runs after the van 
along the rooftops. Yeah, it's a sequence in which Charlie Chaplin invented parkour, apparently. <laughs> um, and and oh, it's it, it's that wonderful way that he can say what he means and be funny and break your heart at the same time. Because one of the reasons he's one of the great clowns is that he's one of the great poetic truth tellers. He gets to the nub of the situation. People sometimes say, oh, he's a great dancer. No, he's not. What he did was put his body at the service of that insightful mind and that real sense of what's important. Um, sorry, I'm getting all emotional. Take it away, Tim. Yeah, I mean, well, I was too, and I, I was watching the kid, and you know... <laughs> if you haven't watched Charles Chaplin's films, watch Charles Chaplin's films. Uh, we did an interview that was on our show earlier in the week, and we talked to a film producer, Steve Woolley. He's produced Mona Lisa and the Company of Wolves. And all, all of Neil Jordan's All of Neil Jordan's films. And he made a really interesting point to us about cinema and about the kind of cult cinema, like the Scarlet Film Club, which is what this film festival is named after, which he said really... You know, the Scarlet Film Club at King's Cross and cinemas were important, but what's really important is the movies. Can I have a say Of course, yeah. Um, obviously, we all know Chaplin is the actor. It's fantastic. But as a person, what was it? And I know a few people in showbiz yeah. would not cross the room if yep. he was in there yep. to speak to him. Absolutely. Well, he, in some ways, yeah, it was impossible. Yeah. Because he was a perfectionist. And perfectionists are very often impossible. But not only that, these few people who I've spoken to, where there's charities set up, He's a local boy. I'm a local boy. Okay. Yeah. I've heard that he would see. You don't know behind the scenes. He might have given money to charities left, right, and centre. But there's nothing that I've read about where he donated money to this area. I'm a local boy just across the way. Right. I knew Yellowstone Castle before this one. But what I'm saying is, as a as a Charlie Chaplin, he was a genius. But as a person, yeah. I don't know many stories to say. That well, he was a warm person. Maybe it was his background, I don't know. Well, I, uh, there's a very good Thames TV series from 1980, which you can get on DVD, called The Unknown Chaplin, where they got hold of rushes from a lot of Chaplin's early films and analysed his working method. And one of the directors of it was a guy called Kevin Brownlow. I very warmly recommend this book if you're interested in Chaplin history. There are hundreds of Chaplin biographies and hundreds of of books and works analysing his films but Kevin Brownlow's book is unique in actually trying to understand Chaplin as a filmmaker, as an artist and I think it's probably, as this gentleman's saying as a filmmaker and artist, you get the good Charlie Charlie the bloke something else um, So you know you've been there that road So I've, got, I've, picked out, I've picked out two quotes from Brownlow's book because Brownlow in 1979-80 he interviewed people that had known Charlie Chaplin uh, in Hollywood so I picked out some quotes from this book, which I think are interesting, exactly what our friend here is saying, which is that Charles Chaplin is very interesting as an artist and as a filmmaker. As a human being, he's quite problematic. And I think, think about it, we've all got here... To, I mean, I'm just amazed at how many people have turned up. Thank you very much, by the way. That, that we're all interested in Charlie Chaplin, but who is Charlie Chaplin? And we're walking around. He was in that building. Yeah. He was miserable. He I was miserable in there. And he was in that workhouse. It was not a good time. He was not happy. When he was walking the same walk that we're about to take, 
he was not happy. There was a period in his life when his mother Hannah had again been incarcerated. She had syphilis and malnutrition and that, that presented to doctors at the time as, as mental illness. Now at least the malnutrition would be treatable and the treatment for syphilis would be better. And Chaplin found himself living on the streets around here for a couple of days, living out of bins. When you watch the kid and you watch the bit of him uh, finding the kid on the pavement and going through the bins, that literally happened, and it happened around here. So he had a very, very tough upbringing, and that, that made him a tough guy. When you become wealthy, I've heard stories that when people went to his home in America, they was eating off of gold-plated plates. I was eating off, yeah, yeah, he had luxury school around him. He was from one extreme to the other. That's a very good way of putting big it. Big time, you know, big time. Not well, poor, poor. He was well, what happens when someone who's had extremes of deprivation... They go wild, yeah. Well, except he didn't go wild. He, did, 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 was he a drunk? No. Did he use drugs? No. In, in terms of the Hollywood of that period, which is near of total excess... He was comparatively restrained. Yeah. And, remember, in a lot of issues, his heart was in the right place. We're talking a man that was endlessly persecuted by J. Edgar Hoover and the That's Federal true, Bureau of yeah. Investigation. He was thrown out of America for being, a quote, a fellow traveller. Um, why? Because he was what the American right called a premature anti-fascist. I mean, one of the things it's important people go and look at again is actually not one of his silent films it's it's one of his talk, few talkies it's The Great Dictator yeah. which okay it was made before the worst things had happened it was made before the war or started before the war and so he regards Hitler and Mussolini as essentially unpleasant comic characters like yeah. his bullies he plays both Hitler and a Jewish tailor who escapes from him and manages to impersonate him. And there's a classic sequence of the dictator getting himself, be, being alone and sending everyone out of the room and taking a globe of the world. Yeah. And it's a balloon. And he plays games with it and he tosses it in the air. And eventually, of course, he bursts it and looks sad. Where would you say he was born? He was born He's right. meant to have been born in Southwark. He reckoned he was born in Southwark. There's another great story connected with that. And I've come across it a few years ago. Somebody had a letter somewhere in a drawer. They just kept it there, yeah. And the story was that he was born in the gypsy environment and looked away mm. out of London. Have you ever come across that story? It's news to me. Yeah, it's almost yeah. certainly not true. But so you've heard it. Because we know that we, we well, we, we do know who his father was. We but know his father was a musical singer yeah. who died of the drink. I mean, but he, have you heard that story? Well, the part of that story which rings true, of course, is the fact that Charles Chaplin, actually the guy, if you met him in Hollywood, he had white hair and brown skin. He wasn't a light-skinned, dark-haired no. guy because yeah. that was an act. But, of course, one of the reasons why Chaplin's been so popular all around the world is he looks like a Panjara. He looks like a Roma person. Mm. He looks like it a could gypsy. Be. It could be true. Yeah. So, right, here are two quotes, and then we'll, we'll get moving and go to where um, to, to Chaplin's house. But I think these two quotes are quite illustrative of 
what we're talking about, which is this tension between Chaplin, the artist, Chaplin the genius, and Chaplin the actual geezer, the guy who partly grew up in this, this building, which is very nice now, but when he lived here, it was pretty grim. So this is a quote from... A, it was a, surrounded by sheds. These are the sheds were where they, they uh, sorted the oakum and also bits of wood. There were the bombsiders, wasn't they, all around here? That's right. Big time. Mm. So this is a quote from uh, a chap who ended up working with Chaplin in Hollywood, but he came from London. It's called Ivor Montague. And Kevin Brownlow describes him in the book as a kind of jolly big roly-poly Stalinist. He was just a very sort of early uh, adopter of the, of the Soviet Union being a good thing. And that partly explains the start of this quote, why, why he knew Wells and George Bernard Shaw. It wasn't until I went to Hollywood in 1929 that I met Charlie. Of course, one of my ideals was to meet him. I knew both George Bernard Shaw and H.G. Wells, and among the introductions I collected were two from them. As soon as I got out to Hollywood, I took them along to Charlie's studio, and there I met Alf Reeves, studio manager. I recognised from the voice that he came from just the part of Brixton that my wife was born in. Of course, people aren't from London. Brixton's another part of South London. I recognised from the voice that he came from uh, just the part of Brixton that my wife was born in. And I brought in Camberwell and Denmark Hill to the conversation. And this made us such bosom pals that he said he would pass the introductions directly to Charlie. No doubt I would be seeing him immediately, but this didn't happen. So he goes on to explain that he hangs around the studio to try and see Chaplin and he can't see Chaplin. Eventually he gets an invitation to go to Chaplin's place where Chaplin's holding some tennis parties. He says Charlie was a very good tennis player. He seemed to be able to attain any skill he wanted. One sees that kind of thing from time to time in the films. Take, for example, the gold rush. That dance with the rolls in it in itself is a marvellous feat of dexterity that he taught himself. I mean, he had coaches and things, but it was his willpower that made him reach the standard at tennis that he attained. He used to have a friendly rivalry with Douglas Fairbanks. Of course, Douglas Fairbanks, he, uh, he toured around America raising money for Liberty Bonds in World War I and eventually uh, went on to form United Artists with Mary Pickford. He used to have a friendly rivalry with Douglas Fairbank because anything that Douglas did, running the, athle- uh, the athletic line, playing tennis, Charlie immediately took up and played it until he could do, do it better than Douglas. It was only when Douglas got to golf that Charlie said he wouldn't follow him. Something like hairdressing, which after all is a great skill, he certainly didn't acquire merely for the great dictator. When we went to stay with him, as we did on our last weekend in Hollywood, he gave my wife the most marvellous haircut she's ever had. He certainly mastered um, any skill that he set out to master. Charlie had an absolute insatiable curiosity. In this, he corresponded to many other people I've met, eminent in their field, science, art, writing, whatever it may be. The one thing in common with them is an avidity in knowing everything they possibly can about anything, in case it may come in useful to them in their field. Charlie was that sort of creative artist. When he met people, he was an observer as well as an actor. Afterwards, he would not make fun of them, but he would describe everything, and you can see clearly what he got out of it. I'm quite sure that every new experience, every society lion that wanted to visit him was somebody who was added to the gallery. I've got another quote, and then we'll get on our way. This is from Virginia Cheryl, who people may recognise that name because she's the blind girl in City Lights. She had no previous acting experience, uh, and... One of his mates at the studio had seen her in a hotel lobby and said, oh, you know, maybe she'd be quite good in your films. Uh, And she ended up not only being in the film and under contract to Chaplin, but she found herself part of this long and laborious process of making City Lights. 
so she's talking about uh, what working at the studio for Chaplin was like. The company had to be there, ready to work, made up at nine o'clock. But Charlie came in when he felt like it. If there was no tennis going, or it wasn't raining, then he might, com uh, might come in every day for months and months. We'd never know. Because one waited for hours sometimes, for days, sometimes for months, virtually three or four months, and Charlie wouldn't come to the studio. Occasionally we'd call the house and ask if he'd left. That was the tactful way to put it. And if we were told he was playing tennis or something, we knew it was safe to go home. But we had no restaurant in the studio and nothing to do. I simply sat in my dressing room and read books, knitted or did needlepoint and was generally bored. I often tried to sneak out of the studio until I was caught. I'd been with a beau for lunch and I was ten minutes late, thinking he wasn't coming. But he came the next day. After that, I was never allowed to leave the studio in the morning. I lunched every day after that in the bungalow with Charlie and Henry Bergman with visitors. Usually I was the only girl, but it was interesting and he had a very good cook. Charlie adored entertaining, and if there was a magician present, he was a musician. If there was a writer present, he was a writer. He told us of his childhood, going to the park and seeing the pretty children. He remembered colours, and he said they were also beautifully dressed in pink and blue and yellow with their nannies. He seemed, it seemed almost as if he were talking about toys that he couldn't afford to have. Think about the red apple that he was denied at Christmas in this building. He told us that he was very poor and he went to some school for poor children and it was terribly cold and they tore chairs apart and burned them on the bathroom floor. He was punished for that. Those are the kind of things that happened to him in that building. Because I make these, these radio programmes and I'm recording what I'm saying now. I'm always aware not only of what I can see, but what I can hear. And as we're moving away from this very busy road and the 21st century and modernity, and yes, we can see another quite modern building. But also, in this quiet little street, in this modest little street, they built glass. Perhaps we can also grasp a little bit of the past. Can we reach back more than 100 years? Can we imagine Chaplin's actual life? Not the guy in the cinema, not the guy on the screen. That little boy played here with his brother. We don't know what was on there, but those nights when he was stuck on his own, he had no one looking after him. His dad had died at 38 from, from drink, from cirrhosis. as a young man, before all that wealth and fame, wandered down this street, remembering living in that building, poked around the bins, tried to find some food. We know he came back and, and filmed around here. Because one of the local churches, he literally came, he came over and filmed a sequence of city lights. So I am now going to leave you momentarily in the spirit of showmanship so we can watch a film, hand the microphone to my, my colleague, Ross Caveney, who will now talk well, here in it is. an entertaining way oh. <laughs> about, about Meffley Street. Well, it's Meffley Street, and if you see, there is the blue plaque. And that, um, I, they won't have had 
more than a, a, a room or two rooms at the most. But this was a street where, where he lived. And he'll have, he'll have played on those stairs. And that's actually quite moving. You know, it wasn't the worst kind of building. It wasn't horrible slums. It was just poor, poor housing for poor people. And you'd have had four or five families in that one building, probably. Maybe only a couple, but... And it's... His life wasn't... Apart, you know, when he wasn't in the workhouse, his life was hanging out with his mother, who does seem to be one of the great influences on his life. Uh, he always said that she taught him a lot about the importance of comedy and tragedy being seen together and happiness and sadness going together. If there's a bit of sweet quality, quality in most of the best of his work, that's something he always said he owed to her, and I see no reason to doubt that that's true. And that's where he learned it. So that's why this is a... We always talk, when we're doing these shows, about how cinema, as opposed to movies you watch on your phone or your computer, how seeing, seeing films in cinemas is a collective experience. It's, it's got something slightly holy about it. And that means there are places that are dedicated to the knowledge you get from films. And one of the bits of knowledge you get from films... I mean, at the end of one of the things some of us saw in the, in the play, there's this lovely bit where he's given up the girl who in that instance is Ed, Edna Perviance, the one of, his leading, one of his leading ladies whom he never had a, an affair with, um, or married, or both. And he hands her over to her sweetheart because you know, she doesn't love him. And he is sad and he walks away dejectedly and he's the little tramp and he, as he walks down the road suddenly the spring comes into his steps and he stops dragging his feet and he's suddenly using the cane jauntily and that's the thing about Chaplin it's about the laughter that comes when you're on the brink of tears anyway I think Tim's probably set up by now so let's wander back and we'll get a good example of that oh thank you And The Immigrant is very interesting because it's one where we know quite a lot about his working method. It started off as a short about um, the tramp suddenly in funds going into a cafe and having problems with the waiter and seeing a pretty girl and chatting her up and buying her a meal and then realising that the money isn't is, 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 a, is a dud and being bullied by the waiter and then luckily they're saved by a rich artist who wants to paint her. But the point is, that little film, he suddenly asked himself the question... Well, first of all, he sacked the original waiter because the waiter wasn't menacing enough. And then uh, he decided, oh, the real story is they've met before 
Um, they, well, how do they know each other? Why, you know, it's not just a casual pickup, it's actually an existing relationship where they found each other again in the streets of New York. And that's why it's about immigration and about meeting on the liner. And that's what we'll see. very own Mr. Charles Chaplin, local boy, he's done very well for himself. Yeah, so they say. I'm really surprised I thought about four or five people would turn up. So I'm really amazed so many people have come along. And uh, thank you for being part of our little walk. Um, no one's keeping a record. You know, well, there's a record of this, but, you know, we're not making a record. But I wonder, has one of Chaplin's films been shown so near to somewhere Chaplin actually knew this street? I don't know. So it's been a, a lovely thing to share this with all of you. And um, thank you very much for sharing it with us. And this, uh, this programme's going out at uh, Christmas on Residence FM. So we just it's a bit early to wish everyone a happy Christmas. When you hear it, we'll be saying happy Christmas and it will be true. <laughs> thank you so much for turning up and go in peace. And like Charles Chaplin, move freely. Yes. Thank you. Smile, Ros Caveney, though your heart is aching. Smile, even though it's breaking. Although it's here, they come ever so near. And you can hear uh, the music bed is the Peddlers uh, doing their rousing rendition of Charles Chaplin's Smile. Now, there's another tune by the Peddlers that we like, and we've put it on one of our podcasts, which you can find on thebeekeepers.com, our podcast being More Music for Films, where we talk a bit more, there's a bit more music. And in one of them, actually, the one about the immigrant, Charles Chaplin, we talked about the Peddlers' fantastic cover of... On a clear day. Stop and look around you I don't know the words, I'm afraid. And you'll see who you were. Or in, in the case of that movie, who you were. Who you were. Um, which is almost a conceptual pun on another great strides in the film. The What's up, we Doc? <laughs> no, the way we were. The way we were. Yeah, of course it is. Wow. Yeah, I hadn't thought of that. Wow. That's a movie which time has not been especially kind to. No, it hasn't, which is unfair. I mean, maybe it will make a comeback. A Star is Born is not a bad film. 
No, I mean, the trouble is that it's one of three versions of Star is Born and not as good as the previous one. Well, this is probably going out at Christmas and we're at the end of our show and, uh, Roz, I want to wish you a happy Christmas. And I want to wish you, Tim, and all our listeners a happy Christmas. I would hope, reflecting on this little journey we've been on this year through some of the magic spaces as Mr Neil Brown was talking about with cinema cinemas are magic spaces full of light and warmth and hope and excitement and dreams but never forget the dark side of all of that and that's remember what Scrooge that proto-Thatcherite said about poverty and want are there no prisons are there no workhouses well we see I mean we seem at the the uh, turn of this year 2017 going into 2018 when we'll be making more editions of music for films and we'll be visiting more places in London talking about more movies we seem to be at a crossroads where we have a choice between a version of London and a version of England and Britain which embodies that that Victorian work ethic and idea but I think we're also is it going too far to say we actually can embrace some of the ideas from the 60s about the that uh, were embodied in the Electric Cinema Club thinking about the world beyond yourself thinking about a different world being possible a world that belongs to the young people rather than old people turning around and taking away the future from young people and being able to work and study and live in 27 different countries it's a crazy idea but maybe we could just change our mind and not do that and and embrace hope and the rest of the world that would be nice this has been a Beekeepers production for Resonance FM at resonancefm.com Resonance FM in London at 104.4 FM podcast is more music for films and you can find it on thebeekeepers.com or your podcasting application of choice. (laughs) 